What's going on, everybody? This is Gavin Dean Smith, and you're listening to Behind the Stage. I wanted to start by thanking all of the listeners. I've been checking out the analytics uh, for the podcast, and we have listeners in Canada, in Scotland, in England, Germany, and all throughout the United States. So thanks again. I appreciate your time. Feel free to check us out on Instagram at Behind the Stage Podcast. You can also access our content on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. Episode three is an interview between my brother Dylan and I. We're 14 months apart, we both grew up playing guitar, and we both grew up going to punk shows. We both grew up playing in bands, however, Dylan's primary focus has always been art. He's designed everything from t-shirts, show flyers, hoodies, album covers, and even recently released his own fragrances. He's designed for bands like Mastodon, Baroness, and most recently, 18 Visions. So let's get into it. Here's episode three with Dylan Garrett-Smith. So what's up, buddy? How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So I don't know which episode number this is going to be. But... 666. Well, one can only hope we make it that long. <laughs> so I just wanted to introduce you. Well, introduce you to the listeners, I should say. On the Zoom call, I have my brother, Mr. Dylan Garrett Smith. Your story is a little bit different, and that's why I wanted to also have you on here for an interview, because the main point of this, and I know, like you said, you listened to episode one, the main point of this is to kind of inspire somebody who wants to work in the music industry or wants to pursue a career that might be outside of playing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and, and you know, you heard the interview that I had with AJ, um, where we talked a little bit about him getting into recording because he had to pay bills when he wasn't on tour. And, you know, I had to tour manage and I don't want to say had to, but that was the role that I fell into, you know, kind of the backstory of what we're trying to accomplish here is to just inspire everybody to say, Hey, you know, even though your band has failed or you're not that great of a musician, but you still want to work in this industry, there's hundreds of jobs that you can either create for yourself or pick from and still have just as much fun and still have just as much success. Um, And because my story isn't me being, you know, me wanting to be in a band and it not working out or like anything like that. Right. But you also started in a very similar way as far as start picking up an instrument at a young age, starting your own bands. I mean, you have toured, you have played in bands. So that's, I think that still fits the, the premise of what we're trying to accomplish here, because it's a very similar story. Now, and that's really where I want to start with this, because I know your story personally, because we grew up together. We're only 14 months apart. At what age did you first pick up a guitar? 13, 14. Okay. Something like that. I mean, like, you know, I got into punk really early. I, I mean, I guess when I was like nine or 10 is when I first started listening to like No Doubt and uh, the offspring and from there you know like got into the Ramones and Misfits and all that stuff so I was like really young and I also got into it like on my own like I feel like most people have like an older brother that gets them into like punk our older brother got us into like good 90s hip-hop <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I you know still love but wanted to learn how to play guitar you were playing bass you know it, it, the second that you picked up a bass I should say you and any instrument, you can just pick up an instrument and you just play it. And, you know, even if it's not your instrument of choice, you 
are proficient enough at it to where like you can play something. When I picked up guitar, when I picked up a guitar, all I could play were like you know shitty three chord Ramon songs. And even though I love that shit, you know I was always like way too sloppy to even be good enough for like a fucking shitty punk band. So when I was like in bands and stuff, like I was always doing vocals because I like yelling and screaming and. I always gravitated more towards writing and drawing. So like, even though I was playing guitar, you know, you were playing bass, I was playing guitar. We had our shitty high school bands, you know, together and separately. And, you know, that wasn't what my main focus was, you know, like it was fun. And I had a blast, like just hanging out and playing instruments and being idiots with our friends and eating fucking taco pizza and shit. That wasn't ever like my main focus. You know, like I was, I was going to punk shows and having a fucking blast. I never really enjoyed playing shows. I really never liked being on a stage. I liked my work being front and center. And I kind of liked being a little bit back in the shadows. I mean, people knew me. And even today, you know, I mean, like the fact that I got to wear a fucking eye patch makes me incredibly recognizable no matter where I am. But I like when my work is center stage not necessarily me as a person so we'll backtrack a little bit because there's two there's two things in your timeline that i think need to be discussed one is at an early age i remember you were making show flyers for a lot of the local shows so if a friend was hosting a basement show or a party or whatever it may be you were designing the flyer which was cool now secondly i remember i played in nothing comes free as a teenager, which was my, my punk band, um, my first real band, I would say. And I remember you coming home with a photo and saying, Hey, I think this would be a really cool t-shirt design. Yeah. And, yeah. And we, they were, it was, it was the police station on state street in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. You had it all kind of, I don't want to say doctored up or Photoshopped, but you had the logo you dropped in nothing comes free underneath and, and had it kind of presented and said, Hey, I think you should print these as a shirt. And we did, we did a couple runs of them and they always sold out. I remember that being a turning point for you because, and I don't want to say it was because of my band, but I remember we went to you for t-shirt designs frequently. When we played World Tour in 2006, you did, I think we did seven shirts and you designed all of them. Yeah. Everything from baseball tees to, I remember you designed, you helped with the one EP cover and and a couple other Uh things, but that whole run of merch was I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, but primarily designed by you. Yeah, I don't I don't remember if any if we had anybody else designing for y'all at that point. No, and I remember we went into the company and and it was funny because one of the first times that we had gone on gone into work with that company that was going to print everything, I remember there was a lot of back and forth between you and their artists because they were changing your designs and we were like, no, 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 no. That's what we want. You know, we yeah, want it yeah. to look that way. We want those colors, you know, and, and because they were so used to having inside jobs and, and things like that. But I think that was a turning point. Yeah, totally. So, <clears throat> so the first band that I ever did a sh- like any kind of a shirt or like patch design for was Indecent Exposure, which was uh, Sean's band at the time. And I remember I did a, uh, like a logo design for them that was like absolutely fucking terrible and I did um, like a patch design that was just so goddamn bad um, I was literally drawing in MS Paint because at the time who the fuck knew what Illustrator was nobody had an actual copy of Photoshop unless you know 
I mean, I pirated one a couple of years later and like learned how to do that like real quick. But um, but let's think of the timing on this because this is probably around 2002. Yeah, yeah. 2003. I mean, maybe maybe earlier than that, but I mean, that's the rough time frame because I remember I started Nothing Comes Free in 2004 and played. I had already done a couple of things before that. Right, and so that would make sense. So and like you had show frame. flyers and a couple of patch designs, but I didn't know anything about screen printing. I didn't know anything about designing. I didn't know anything about illustration. So I was literally drawing shit in MS Paint uh, and then printing it out on those transfer sheets. And we were like ironing them onto like shirts and pieces of like cut up like natural uh, canvas mm -hmm. as like, patches and shit. And, you know, we were also like making our own pins. It was super fucking DIY and just kind of like figuring shit out as we went. And then it was through, you know, like high school art classes and shit where like my teachers were really pushing me you know, to like do more, you know, drawing and painting and illustration and teaching me about like printmaking techniques and, you know, all this other shit. And then your band starts in 2004 and I take that photo. I, I want to say I took that photo only a couple of months after y'all were, were a band. And yeah, I, I wanted like, I, I stood on like somebody's fucking shoulders to get, to get that photo because I wanted the the police sign to line up perfectly with the state street sign. So it said police state. And I, I can't remember who the fuck it was. It might've even been you. Well, fast forward a little bit, but I remember even when you were getting ready to go to college, your portfolio that you were going and having these interviews with was primarily music based. It was yeah. show flyers. It was t-shirt designs. You yep. had, you had done a sculpture and I don't know if you have it up online, but you had done a ceramics a ceramic sculpture, excuse that was me. Tough for you to say. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm cut out for this, uh, <laughs> but it was kind of this melting heart with scissors in it. it. Almost reminded me something like from the used, almost. One hundred percent, yeah. It was definitely yeah. from the used, yeah. So I remember your portfolio being very music inspired, and you ended up, you know, in 2006 getting accepted to Pratt, which is in Brooklyn, which is like the Harvard of art schools. So why don't you yeah. talk a little bit about that experience? So first of all, what's actually really funny is um, you're right. Like my entire portfolio was like show flyers, uh, shirt designs, shit that I had done for, you know, like other bands and stuff like that. And then like a couple of like sculptural pieces and like paintings. Right. But the sculptural pieces, what's really funny is, yeah, I did that ceramic one with like the, you know, like melty heart with like, the, you know, the scissors, whatever. It was definitely just like a rip from, you know, the used at the time. But then I had done this like, you know seven foot tall or like eight foot tall structure with like these like found branches and like twigs and shit that I had found in the woods outside of like our, our high school and I had found like this like like decayed deer corpse basically took all of those bones that I had found like right in the woods only like you know 200 feet from the school and all those branches and everything literally drug them into the hallway and like built this like massive structure in the middle of the hallway. Do you remember that? Yeah. So it's like really funny is my, <laughs> my, my portfolio is still music based, you know, still doing shit for like punk and metal bands still, you know, and drawing branches and bones and decaying shit. I think that like, Back then, I didn't have the vocabulary to really um, 
articulate what it was that I was interested in. But now I know it's that duality of that fine line between beautiful and grotesque. And now I very much know that that is what I gravitate towards that, you know, that kind of fine line where depending on how you look at it, like something is either fucking gross or absolutely beautiful. But those are the things that I was even thinking about back then and getting accepted into Pratt, going to upstate New York at first and then realizing that I hated upstate New York. Nothing against upstate New York, but it wasn't for me. And going down to Brooklyn only after a year um, and living there for the next like four years was just a fucking wild experience. Um, you know, going to shows there and working with more bands and making friends and, you know, that were putting together shows like up in, you know, Utica and Rome, New York, you know, still doing show flyers, still doing shirt designs. But what I actually did, so here's like another thing is I went to, I got accepted to art school for painting. And after a year of being in, you know, taking your foundation classes and, you know, gearing more towards painting and everything, I realized what I was doing in my spare time was always printmaking. I was always doing like wood cuts, lino cuts. I was screen printing like fucking crazy. And like, that's what I was doing for shirts and show posters and shit. And after like a year, I was like, wait, I'm not fucking painting in my spare time. I'm screen printing. I'm illustrating. I'm making shirt designs and show flyers and then, you know, fucking screen printing them. And that's what I'm doing for fun. So like, why would I not pursue this if that's what I clearly enjoy doing? And that's what I did. So when I went down to Brooklyn and I used that as an excuse to get, uh, to transfer a year early from Pratt upstate New York to Pratt Brooklyn. I got accepted to both, but I went upstate because it would save bucks. So even though you got accepted for painting and then you started to pursue printmaking, where was the shift in your art style? Because I know you still do flyers and I still know that you're, you're proficient in screen printing and you still, you're still very involved, but you have, an, uh, you have a style that's identifiable that if anybody sees it, they know that it's yours. And I actually, we were just in Nashville and walking down the street, I saw a t-shirt and I crossed the street. I probably looked like I was stalking this poor kid but I got real close to his t-shirt because I almost swore that it was yours and it wasn't, <laughs> but it was one of those things that I was like, that might've been designed by my brother. So at what point do you think, or can you recognize a shift in your art style? Because the designs that you did for me as a teenager compared to the designs and the work that you're doing now is very different. A lot of that at the time was digital. It was Photoshop. It was based on photography. And a lot of the stuff that you're doing now is, they're hand drawn. And I know you're kind of sprucing them up by uploading them into your computer with some of them. But at what point did you gravitate towards that style of like, you know, ash on black paper and, and things like that? Because a lot of the bands that we'll get into this in a, in a few minutes, a lot of the bands that have hired you since it's been based on that style. So at, yeah. at what point in your career did that shift? I graduate from Pratt in 2010. I move out of Brooklyn and I move back to Pennsylvania. Uh, I lived in Philly in 2012, but so um, in the middle of 2010, I moved back to uh, moved back to Pennsylvania. I no longer had access to, you know, a litho press. I no longer had access to a screen print studio. I didn't have, you know, like the facilities at Pratt to do the things that I normally did in the way that I normally did them. 
And when I was designing as a teenager, you know, like I was, I was basically just chopping up images that I found on, on, you know, Google image search or whatever. And, you know, chopping those up, editing them together, up in the contrast, thresholding the shit out of it. Because at that point, even though I was illustrating and painting, I didn't know how to take what I was doing on paper and put it into a computer and clean it up, fix it up, do any of that shit. So I was just like making do with what I knew how to do. And they were like very different. There was no uh, similarity between what I was doing in painting and what I was doing then you know, with the design, whatever. So I had taken a couple of my posters and I had given, or I had, uh, yeah, I had given them to Mike, the owner at Grindcore House. And he was like, oh shit, like I absolutely love these, you know, like, would you want to have a show in, in October? And it was October of 2012, right? So, so for anybody who doesn't know what Grindcore House is, Grindcore House is a, is a coffee shop in Philly that yeah, has yeah. this really wide open room in the back that they used to host, I believe, shows and art and, and art shows and stuff like that, right? Yeah, they would do like a, like some acoustic shows from like, you know, like they have like Pygmy Lush there. But um, yeah, so then they would do like art shows in the back and stuff. And, you know, it's a much more like punk metal, you know, kind of coffee shop as opposed to walking into, you know, a, any other coffee shop and hearing, you know, some indie stuff and like whatever you'd walk in there and curse to be blasting. You know, like that was always my coffee shop, you know, of choice. So he offered me a show there and I was like, yes, yeah, sick. And the show wasn't for like a year. And I was like, all right. So this was like maybe like 2011, him and I talk, the shows in 2012. In the last year, I've actually only made one piece because I'm so fucking depressed. <laughs> you know, like I didn't have access to that studio. I didn't, you know, I didn't have, uh, I hadn't figured out like a solid work ethic yet, even though I had been in school and shit, like, you know, having the facilities that close and having access to them really made things easy but there's also something to be said for that because for anybody who plans on listening to this episode where we grew up and where we live in the Pocono Mountains and Brooklyn are like night and day everything yeah. is very spaced out you need a car to get to places the Poconos thrives on outdoor recreation whereas the city everything is within arm's reach if you will I mean I'm going through that right now because I'm back and forth from Jersey City and it's right. the convenience is is huge. So I mean, for for that, you know, f so I can, you know, just to paint that picture. Yeah. So like in the year after college, I had only made one painting, and you know, like that painting, I did like a run of prints. It sold out. I had that piece in like a bunch of art shows. I had no idea what ended up happening to that original. It might have sold. It might have been stolen. Who fucking knows? But I had only made one piece the entire year from graduating till I was offered that grindcore show. So I get offered that show and I kind of sit down and start thinking about like, okay, like what's the concept for this show? What is, what am I doing? What do I want to make? What does this show look like? What does it feel like? Like what the fuck? And I had already been experimenting like a little bit, even though I hadn't, you know, made anything other than that one painting, but I was experimenting and shit and trying to figure out different materials and figure out what my work looks like when I don't have access to a studio, right? Or to a print shop. And I, Paul Romano had posted a piece of his that he had done like, I don't know, five or 10 years before. And at this point, Paul had always been, and to this day, still is, 
my favorite living artist. I had album art of his literally on the walls of my bedroom as you know a high school kid as a college kid like I was obsessed with his shit if anybody doesn't know he did the first six I believe record covers uh for Mastodon he did the album art for None More Black he did uh Villainy and Virtue but the record Villainy and Virtue is beautiful album art I had that literally hanging on my wall because the art was so gorgeous and you know all of these pieces were all by him right so he posts this picture of a piece that he had done like on slate with white paint of this like skull. You know, I was like, oh shit. You know, like when I was in high school, when I was in college, I always really enjoyed illustrating using light media on a dark surface. It made more sense to me, especially because of the fact that when I was illustrating or doing designs for fucking bands and shit, it was always on a black shirt. So I was always drawing, the, you know, the white areas, you know, for the white ink to go on a black shirt. So my brain just, why am I not making art this way if I'm designing this way? A lot of people will, you know, do their illustrations on white paper with black ink. And then when the second that the, that the band, you know, gets the art, they're like, oh, well, shit, how do we, how do we put this on a black shirt? There's only two ways that people do that. They either put a, you know, they either outline the entire thing and then fill the background with black so that they can put it on a black shirt, or they do what is my biggest pet peeve, which is invert. And there's nothing that I hate more than seeing a beautiful illustration inverted so that it, you can print it on a black shirt. And I was like, well, shit, if this is how I'm designing and I'm designing things, you know, for black shirts, like why the fuck am I not making my my actual art that way and it was just this epiphany that his piece it was just like immediate I was like whoa why am I not doing this so I immediately like the next day went out to the store and got just a shit ton of of uh black stonehenge stonehenge black which I still use to this day it is my favorite paper to illustrate on and I got that and I got just like a bunch of different shit, you know, gel pens, white ink, uh, white charcoal. And what I ended up sticking with, which is uh, white chalk lead. I start, you know, trying things out, just making marks, seeing what I like, seeing what the paper likes, just experimenting and just seeing what that was about. And I had had this mortar and pestle on my desk in my studio where I would burn incense in. And I was writing a letter to a friend, burning the edges of the paper. And it was like this, like, you know, pineapple paper that I had gotten from, you know, a friend in Costa Rica that sent it to me, whatever. I had written a note on that to send to a friend and was burning the edges and aging it and staining it and all this stuff. And so I just took the, the excess burnt pages and I liked the smell of it. So I would just take a little piece of that, put it in the mortar and pestle, burn that. And it was kind of like this like incense because I just liked the smell of that smoke, right? So at one point, I ended up just being like, oh, like I wonder what this looks like. So I took some of it and just kind of smeared it on the paper. I was like, I really like the tone of that. So I cut up an old shirt, made like a chamois out of like this old black cotton shirt that I had, dipped it in the ashes and started spreading it on the paper and realized, wow, I can really build 
some beautiful tones with this and kind of push and pull. And then I took some black ink and started drawing it. And then I, you know, would wipe it away and it would push it back. And it was kind of like experimented. And literally for the last 10 years, that is how I've been making art using white chalk lead ashes when I'm doing something more atmospheric and black ink to kind of push things back and clean things up. After the style is identified, what's the first, I don't want to say big because that's subjective, but what was one of the most recognizable projects that you were hired to do based on that style first? We'll, we'll start there. So I'll say that show that I made that I made for Grindcore House, all but three pieces sold in that show. It was almost a completely sold out show. At that show, I actually ended up meeting Paul Romano. Him and I hit it off, became friends. You know, from, from, so it was from that show that I started getting people, you know, acknowledging my work, following my work, checking my work out, hiring me. You know, just the list goes on. Like it was literally that show that people started paying attention to my shit. Mm -hmm. Because before that, it was, I was only working for friends. Well, and um, then a couple, a couple years after that, you're introduced to Jay Weinberg from Slipknot Against Me. And, and you had a, a, I don't want to say co-headlining, but you guys had a, a showing together. So I had an art show in Brooklyn. And I had done some work for a bunch of bands um, before. You know, punk bands, metal bands, hardcore bands, you know, like whatever. Jay had seen my had seen my work, and at that point, he was in against me, and uh, he had been in Madball. He was like, "Oh, like I'm gonna be at that show in Brooklyn. I would absolutely like love to meet you." And I was like, "Hell yeah!" And him and I had been like, you know, internet friends for like a little bit, but he was like, "Yeah, I like, really want to meet you at this show." And I was like, "Hell yeah! Like let's do it." So him and I ended up meeting. Totally hit it off because Jay is one of the sweetest human beings on the fucking planet and a couple months later he was like hey i got this idea for kind of like a joint show with you and i like let's do, let's like talk to some galleries in asbury let's put some work together whatever so him and i start putting together our you know our work i'm working on some stuff he's working on some stuff we have a couple of meetings with some galleries in asbury park and uh the one dude wrote me this so the one gallery that we talked to actually denied us. And it wasn't because of Jay. It was because of me. And he sent me this very lengthy, very gnarly email telling me that my work was way too dark. And that if I literally ever wanted to do anything in the art world, I would have to make it more palatable to a mainstream audience because with the way that my work was, no one would ever like it. No one would ever buy it. No one was ever going to show it. And, you know, in response to that, I had typed up this real long message basically being like, listen, dude, like, you know, there's a million fucking art worlds and I, you know, I don't need to fit into yours, you know, like, if you don't want my work, that's fine. And after, you know, I wrote this whole thing out, basically, you know, in so many words telling this guy to go fuck himself. I selected all of it, I hit delete, and all I responded with was, thank you for your time. And I was like, this guy isn't worth my time. And the fact that he doesn't like my work tells me that my work is not for him and I'm doing something right. If this took place earlier, it would have been funnier to send him the, uh, the like surfs up emoji back. Yeah. <laughs> that's my, just, that's just the metal horns. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my favorite thing to do. When I get a text message from somebody that I'm like, not stoked on, I send them back like the eggplant 
or <laughs> actually somebody did it to me earlier. They sent me the avocado and I was like, man, that's a, yeah. that's, a that's a power move. That's something I would do. So while Jay and I are having these meetings about this art show that him and I are putting together, he hits me up, he calls me and he was like, hey man, I really have to apologize. Uh, something came up and I'm not going to be able to, I'm not gonna be able to do this show. And I was like, hey man, I took, hey, whatever you gotta do, I completely understand it. And he's like, well, I was offered a job and it's literally my like childhood dream job. And there's no way that I can say no to it. And I was like, hell yeah, man. Like I'm stoked as fuck for you. Take that job, you're gonna kill it. You know, like whatever. And he's like, I can't talk about what it is because I had to sign an NDA. He was like, but just know that it's huge that I'm really excited, but that I'm also bummed that we can't do this show right now. And I was like, well, fuck man, I'm stoked for you. You know, like go for it. So we get off the phone. And I don't really think anything of it. I'm just like, hell yeah, like he's doing cool stuff. I, you know, go back to making my work. I'm working in the studio. And weeks later, I start seeing, you know, these like, you know, Metal Sucks articles about how Slipknot has a new drummer. R.I.P. Joey. Yeah, I was going to bring that up in, in current events. Unfortunately, he just passed away yesterday and it is heartbreaking. 46 years but, old, man. Yeah. I see that Slipknot has a new drummer and I'm not thinking anything of it. I'm just like, Oh, whatever. And just kind of scroll past. And then, you know, another week goes by and people are like, well, who's this new guy? Who knows? We'll figure it out. <laughs> I scroll past, you know, and it was probably like another two weeks that, you know, internet sleuths and I'm probably mixing up the timeline. It was probably like a fucking week and a half because internet sleuths are wild, but Someone had started in the comments and being like, yo, I know those tattoos that you can see in that video at like, you know, a minute and 43 seconds are Jay Weinberg's. So I sent him a text message and I'm like, yo, Jay, I'm seeing, I'm seeing the rumors and uh, I know you can't say anything, but I just want to know if the, or I just want to say if the rumors are true, I'm stoked as fuck for you and super proud you're amazing. You're fucking killing it. And the text that he sends back is, I have no idea what you're talking about, but thank you so much <laughs> with a bunch of kiss faces. <laughs> and I was like, all right, sick. You know, like, and then it was, you know, a little bit after that, that they actually did an official announcement and gave him a mask, you know, all that stuff. But yeah, what's wild is we were working on that show before he was in Slipknot. And then, you know, like when that tour finally came to Pennsylvania, you know, he had hit me up and was like, yo, like I got two passes like ready to go for you in Reading, you know, like come out. And that was when Corn uh, and Slipknot were playing. And I called you and you didn't fucking go. And that show was incredible. And I can honestly say to this day of all the fucking bands that I've seen, every punk band, every tour that I've been on, just every band that I've worked with, the best show I've ever seen is Slipknot. Yeah, I've never seen Slipknot Period. live. I've never seen Corn live. Uh, I do remember getting Iowa for my 12th birthday. It was heavy. It's good. I mean, we were listening to it last night. It's a, it's a good record, man. Iowa is, you know, like I was never into new metal. I was never into Corn. I did not like Limp Bizkit. I fucking can't stand Deftones. But, man, Iowa, they kill it. 
I wanted to kind of segue into some, some of your recent projects because the reason why you're on here is because ultimately you've designed a bunch of stuff for some pretty, pretty large bands. I mean, you've designed everything from, you know, skateboards, shirts, hoodies, of course, show posters. We talked about tour posters, but you've also done record covers and stuff like that. So I wanted to segue into your work with, you know, not only Baroness, but Mastodon. And then most recently, all the work you did with 18 Visions. They came yeah, out yeah. And, and released a record and you you did all the work for it. Uh, Mastodon is always fun to work with. Baroness is another fun one. John Dyer Baisley has always been one of my favorite artists and illustrators. Um, I love that band and it's always a blast to do things with them. But how were you introduced to them? Did they find you? Did you reach out to them and send them stuff? Did you offer to do work? How did that, how did that transaction take place? Because I, what we want to do here is I want to give somebody the idea and, and share your story to say, hey, you know, this is the route that I took. And while it was risky, it actually worked. So were you, were you shopping yourself out to these people? How did that take place? There are only three bands that I have ever reached out to. AFI, Kesha, and Wolves in the Throne Room. Those are the only three bands that I've ever reached out to, and I haven't worked with them. Every other client that I have, and at this point I have around or over 200 clients that I've worked with, have always come to me based off of other work that I've done. I think that it's really easy sometimes when people see things on the internet and they're like, oh, this guy is working with this big band. What the fuck? How did that just happen overnight? Nothing happens overnight. I've done over 150 art shows. I have done equally as many vending events where I'm actually face-to-face talking with people. I have been published over 35 times in different books and magazines and different shit. You know, I've probably been on 10 podcasts. I post, you know, I try to post twice a day on, on social media, details and finished pieces and, you know, behind the scenes photos from the things that I'm working on. It is a constant grind. What I always try to do, no matter what project I'm working on, when I sit down and I go to work on something that someone has hired you know, someone has paid me to do. I want to do the best job that I can possibly do so that when they post it, that art gets me three more jobs. And I won't stop working on a piece until I feel confident enough with it that when this goes out into the world, three more jobs are going to come in from it. I, that's how I felt with art shows. That's how I felt with, you know, prints that I was releasing. That's how I felt with bands that I was working with or shirt companies or skate companies, whatever it was. You know, the early work was not as good, but it was the best that I could do at that time. And I can look back at my work and I can say, that wasn't very good, but it was the best that I could do at that time. And I think that that's like an important thing for people to, you know, have in mind when they're working on stuff, you know, like don't take a job if it's for a band that you don't think is going to, you know, get you more work or don't, don't just do an idea that someone sends you because it'll be a, a couple quick bucks. Like if you, if that's not the direction that you want to see your work going, don't fucking do it. Sure. It'll get you 500 bucks. You know, is it going, is it going to get you more things that you want to do? If the answer is no, sorry, dude, there's somebody better for this project. 
And I, I have had no problem turning down projects. I've had no problem reading what a band had in mind for the record cover, which as far as record covers go, I've done over 30 now, probably close to 40. When a band has hit me up, you know, if they're like, oh, like we want a pterodactyl skateboarding in a half pipe doing a kick flip and there's a bomb going off in the background. Sorry, man. Like that's, that sounds cool, but that's not me. There's this other artist that I think would be perfect for that. Here's his info. He's a friend of mine. Tell him that I sent you. Because that's not, that's not the work that I want to do. For somebody else that wants to do it, but it's not for me. There's a, because again, the, the constant theme is like the alternatives, right? And like in the music industry, we find that, you know, maybe there's this alternative gig that actually helps us get by, but it all kind of stemmed from playing music. But you've also taken it one step further to also step out of your own comfort zone and pursue alternatives because you also make fragrances. How did that come into play? Because I mean, we're jumping around a little bit, but it's cool to know that, so I'll give you an example. In that first interview that I did with AJ, of course, he was playing music, pursued recording, but also got into photography and videography and 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 designing websites because of the task at hand. And, and he ended up using those skills later in life to where those things are paying the bills. At what point did you kind of branch off to say, hey, making fragrances would be kind of cool? So first of all, I want to say that for me, art was never the alternative. For me, art was never you know, like, oh, well, like, you know, that's what I can do instead. Like, there was never an instead. Like, from day one, art was always my primary focus. Playing in bands, playing music, I mean, I still have bands, you know, that I have right now. I have a recording project called Void with Dave Filstra, who runs Animal Recordings in Portland. You know, like, I had, you know, like, a surf punk band in Pennsylvania called Low Spirits. Void was only a recording project. Low Spirits played one show every year for like three years, and that was it. And that's all I ever cared to do with that band. The touring band that I was in back in like 2011 and 12, I literally quit because it was interfering with my art. And the bands that I was in in high school were just fun for me. It was never so. So for me, art was never an alternative to anything, it was always the primary focus. I might get a little loud about this because I feel really fucking passionate about it. Art is as important, especially in the alternatives, no matter what alternative scene you're a part of, punk, metal, hardcore, art and aesthetics are just as important as the music that you're listening to. Think about the, the role that fashion plays. Think about, think about when you were at the record store as a teenager and you were, and you were walking through. When you saw fucking Slayer's records, you knew what that record sounded like. When you saw Ride the Lightning, you knew what that record sounded like, which I know you mentioned on your earlier podcast, which yeah. is why I brought it up. Mm -hmm. When you saw those t-shirt designs of those fucking bands, you wanted to check out that band because the art looked so fucking cool. Right. And I think that a lot of people look at art, they look at fashion, they look at design, and they think that it is outside of what is happening in punk because punk is the music and, you know, like whatever, whatever. It goes hand in hand and it's equally as important because there's still a message in aesthetics. When you put out a record and you're posting about that on social media, you're posting about that, you know, like what do you have to show for it? You have music videos, you have the album art, 
you have promo shots of the band. If you don't look cool, if your art doesn't look cool, who the fuck wants to check out your record? The first interaction that most people have with your music is through your fucking art. And I get so fucking riled up about this because so many people look at art, they look at design, they look at fashion and aesthetics, and, and they just kind of, you know, they just kind of wave it off. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like the important thing is the band. Nobody would care to check that band out in the first place if they didn't look cool. Well, especially in, the, in a day and age right now where everything is social media based. How many bands, like think about, like how many bands did you check out because you saw their album art in the record store back when record stores were still a thing, right? Think about how many bands you checked out because a shirt design walking past you at a show looked fucking sick. Being at a venue and seeing a show poster with like a rad design and, you know, a fucking band name that, you know, you're just like, oh, like, I wonder what that band sounds like because that record is, or that, that show poster design is gnarly. No matter what your aesthetic is, you have stories where you check something out just because of you seeing something and it registering with you. Yeah, because it looked cool. Yeah. No matter what your definition of cool is. So the first, that's what I'm saying. Like the first interaction that your fans have of your music, nine, you know, 99% of the time is through your art. So do it fucking right. No matter what that right is. So for me, art was never an alternative to anything. From day fucking one, it was always like, that looks fucking sick. Think about skateboarding. That's skateboarding. a prime example. Yeah, it's a prime example. The top of a skateboard looks the exact same if you're all using black grip tape. But what did you scratch into that grip tape? What did you paint on that grip tape? What did, how did you pull it apart? And then when you flip that skateboard over, what you chose to ride says a lot about you as a person. It has the same exact message behind it. There's just as much politics and imagery in art as there is music but not everybody speaks that same language right but i think you being and, and that's the point of this interview is you being that resource to say hey i mean and like you said it's not an alternative for you but it's nice that your focus is heavily inspired by music and involved in music whether it is the record totally. whether it is the merch whether it is you know, uh, I mean, the segue into skateboarding and stuff like that. So it's nice to say, hey, you know, if you want to pursue this career or if this wants to be your main focus, there's a way of doing it. And these are different ideas as to how. So <clears throat> to circle kind of back to the question that you had was, you know, like, well, how did you, you know, get into perfume and things like that? For me, back in I want to say it was maybe 2017, I think. I had a solo show at uh, the convent in Philly, which is run by some really great friends of mine. I had had a solo exhibition there. And this was at a time when it was about a year after all of the bullshit with my autoimmune disease kicked up. And I was really thinking about senses. I was thinking about how we interact with the world around us because I was hyper-focused on what was happening to me. Realistically, I was thinking, how can I continue to make art and, care and, and create the things that I care about and feelings and ideas and everything um, in the event that I 
lose my vision because at the time I didn't know if this double vision was going to get worse. I didn't have a diagnosis like I do now of myasthenia gravis because I didn't have a diagnosis for like nine or 10 months. And the entire time, you know, like you don't know if things are going to get better. You don't know if they're going to get worse. You don't know if you're going to go blind. So I was thinking, well, how can I continue to do the thing that I love doing, which is making shit in the event that I can't see? Well, I love perfume. So let's, let's think about that. Let's think about how perfume plays into memories, how that plays into feelings, how it plays into emotions. When you walk into a space and you smell it, you know, like what is, what is being communicated, right? There's a lot of communication in fragrances and scents, just like there is in vision when you're looking at stuff. It's just a different, it's, it's, it's a different way to do and say the same thing. So when I had that art show, I created original pieces that were framed and hung in the, in the space. I painted a mural in the entire space to look like you were in this, you know, dense, gnarly, you know, grayscale forest. Uh, I hung the pieces to look like they were actually like hung from the trees that I painted. I brought branches and leaves and I covered the floor in leaves. I brought branches in the corner that kind of came up as a canopy on the ceiling. I set up an altar and I had my perfume that I created just for that exhibition burning when you walk in, right? So this was playing with an experiential exhibition and installation. And it was playing off of four out of five senses. Because when you walked in, you're feeling the crunch of the leaves under your feet. You're seeing the art and, and the, the painting that I did on the walls and you're seeing the candles lit and everything. You're hearing an original score that I collaborated with Dave Filster on. Uh, he wrote and recorded it and I just kind of led him in a few directions and whatever. But that was blasting when you walked in. You smelled the fragrance that I had burning there. And I wanted it to be as, as immersive as possible of an experience using all of your senses that I could. And that was where that concept came from. You could kind of say that like, it was an alternative to losing your fucking vision, right? I was having this conversation with somebody the other day where it's things that were, things that became well-known because of something more significant. So we'll, we'll use the example of your fragrances because you were potentially losing your vision. You had to pursue some kind of alternative to make it work for you. And I think it's, it's inspirational for sure. And, you know, there's a couple things I want to cover because I want to try and keep these at, at roughly the hour mark. But, you yeah, know, yeah. if somebody were to come up to you and ask for, you know, words of encouragement or advice to do what you do, what would you say? Whatever your shit is, just keep making it. There's a million different art worlds. There's a million different scenes. No matter what it is that you're doing, it's going to resonate with somebody. And even if, it, even if you aren't finding that audience you're still making the shit that you want to make. And I think that that is just super important. I know a lot of artists, but because they did a couple of Sharpie illustrations and posted it on, posted it on Instagram with a, you know, cheeky saying on it, it started selling like fucking crazy. And that's kind of what they went towards. You know, there's like a lot to be said in either way for that, you know, between making your art or making things commercially, you know, successful and like whatever but as long as as long as you're doing what you want to do i think that that's fucking sick second question favorite 
record, not necessarily the music, but album art of all time, if you had to pick one? All right. If I had to pick one favorite album cover of all time, Black Sails and Sunset. I thought, I, yeah, I figured you were going to say that. Like Alan Forbes killed it. All of all of the records that he did art for, for The Offspring and AFI. I think for me, the record, com- the record cover that always comes to mind is Follow the Leader by Korn. Yeah, that's another good one. I love that one. I think it's so good. And I mean, I remember it just being, getting it as a kid, but I think every time I think of like album art, you know, cause it's like you said, when you go back and you think of records that you first picked up and you were kind of sold on the cover, I'll give you one that I was duped on. And this is a hilarious story. Went to the record store with dad when I was a kid and picked up a Grateful Dead record. Skeletons in the closet, right? Where it's like, it's like the skeleton playing poker, like smoking a cigar. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is cool. Or as the kids would say, this slaps. And, uh, and uh, I got, I got it. Well, I got it. Magnolias. Well, I got it home and it's like bluegrass. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? But I mean, there's a newfound appreciation for that stuff now that I'm older, but it's, it's definitely not my, uh, at probably six or seven years old. That's, that's the last thing you want to listen to. That's fucking funny. Yeah. Like, but that's another thing, right? So if we're talking about art and we're talking about design, these, these are kind of like two different concepts that kind of go hand in hand. Good design communicates exactly what you want it to, right? But the Grateful Dead, their art does a really phenomenal job at communicating a lifestyle and a mindset more so than a musical sound. The people that were the people that were following Grateful Dead, right? They were fucking outlaws. <laughs> you know, like they were they were some fringe fucks, right? And you know, even the name Grateful Dead their art with you know skulls and roses and guns and you know what i mean like just and you're like you listen and you're like this doesn't sound like this looks but when you think about the lifestyle and you think about like that like fringe community where half of them were you know like living with each other following the band around creating communes together and you know doing their own thing as you know these outlaw fucks on the fringe like that's when you start realizing, oh, this is what this art is communicating. It's communicating a lifestyle. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, and this is something I've been bringing up in, it's actually the first time I'm bringing it up on this, but I've been asking people like that I've been in, you know, having conversations with or talking about music with, and this isn't, this isn't to talk shit. This isn't to bash anybody, but bands in history that you know their contribution to music. You know how talented they are. You know how good of songwriters they are. You know that contribution, but they just don't do it for you. I'll go first. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, man. Weezer. Wilco. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go in and I might get shit for this because I always do. Led Zeppelin. I'm with you on Led Zeppelin. So yeah, who, who would be your top bands that like i said you know their contribution to music there's nothing doubting their talent or their success but it's just it's just something that doesn't work for you i recognize you know the cultural contribution of elvis but i also think that we need to be acknowledging people like fucking sister rosetta tharp who was infinitely cooler 
than Elvis was, doesn't get even a quarter of the recognition and was literally pioneering the beginning of rock and roll. I mean, she was like a queer black woman that invented fucking rock and roll. We need to be acknowledging that. Elvis wasn't the king of shit as far as I'm concerned. I get, I get it, but it's not for me. While we're on this topic, so those are, the, I think that those are like the two big ones for me, right? And if anybody says Black Sabbath, I will fight them. Let's talk about some bands that when you hear, you're immediately furious. U2. You put on U2 at a party, I'm ready to throw hands. The next one, and just, I don't know why, but the second that I hear it, I'm immediately just full of rage. I hate George Thorogood. You know what song makes me furious? The Gambler. <laughs> not, not because of the song, but because the gambler's a piece of shit. Well, it just sounds to me like you don't know when to fold him. <laughs> Handed him my bottle and he drank down my last swallow. Asked me for a smoke and then bummed a light like this piece of shit. <laughs> Good stuff. Was that Kenny Rogers? Yeah. Yeah. Well, is that, shit. is that Kenny Rogers? It's funny though because Amy and I have had this conversation, and you know, it's, you know, her two bands are that if she hears them, she's like ready to fucking fight. Sublime and Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Lucero, I love Lucero. Well, yeah, but their fans are fucking atrocious. Uh, so hey, just wanted to thank you again for taking some time out of your schedule to have this conversation with me. I know we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. I know we've been talking about this concept for a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, man, just wanted to thank you again. And uh, your your episode should be up shortly. Um, but yeah, just wanted to get some insight from somebody that you know is in the art world and has a career designing albums and 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 working with bands. Uh, so I hope if somebody finds this, they can. They can gain some inspiration and, uh, and start some projects of their own for sure. Oh, yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. Uh, for everybody else, you can follow me at DylanXVX on Instagram and TikTok and everywhere else. And uh, yeah, if you're, if you're making art, give me a follow. Check out what I'm doing and uh, I'll see you there. Thanks again to Dylan for taking time out of his schedule to discuss his art career with me. I called Dylan last night and asked him if he would send me a track from one of his previous bands. He declined, but actually sent me a song by a band called Dumpweed from New Jersey. Dumpweed recently hired Dylan to do some design work for them. So here it is, Vampires Exist by Dumpweed.